she absolutely nailed that one, didn't she? All that do-do-do sounds like a Blackpink song. Um, so just keep that in your mind as we work in, go into the Word right now. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your Word. And this morning, I pray uh, that you would cause sleepy or slow or... Uh, drifting souls to be aroused and awakened through the preaching of your word. Help us, dear Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to our final week in part one of our sermon series on the book of Romans. Uh, we've worked our way, right, all the way from chapter one to chapter seven, and God willing, we'll pick up on chapter eight to the very end uh, sometime into the future. And now to begin with, I need to confess that Romans 7 especially the end of Romans 7, which is our passage for today, is a particularly difficult passage to read, to study, and of course to preach, right? Uh, it's difficult, firstly, because it is a complicated passage to interpret and to understand. Uh, some people call Romans 7, 14 to 25, the dooby-dooby-doo passage, right? That's not the scholarly term, but that's the colloquial term. Uh, because if you read it, right, you'll see Paul saying, I want to do this, but I don't want to do that. But if I do this and I don't do that, dooby-dooby-doo, right? Kind of complicated. It's easy to get lost. There are a few paradoxes that we're going to try to untangle today. Uh, second of all, it's also difficult because it's so personal. You know, I read Paul's words here, and it almost sounds like he has taken the very words out of my mouth. Because you see, as I read, or as I think about sin and its power over my life, I find myself echoing the same words of verse 24. Oh God, what a wretched and miserable person I am. God, help me. Sin has such a grip over me, and I long to be free from it. <clears throat> and sometimes I can feel trapped and powerless. Uh, but thirdly, it is difficult because as a pastor, I regularly see how sin absolutely destroys people. Uh, and church, this breaks my heart because I consistently see how sin can ruin an individual. How it strips them of self-worth. How it derails them of direction in life. How it turns them into cold, numb, and lifeless people. Uh, you know, sometimes I sit across someone in a pastoral counseling session. They're either recounting their past or they're speaking about their present life. Often there are tears involved. And as we dissect and process everything that has happened, I just think to myself, I cannot believe that this is a result of sin. It has the ability to completely ruin a person. Sin is no joke, right? Uh, but we know it's more than that. Sin doesn't just ruin individuals. It ruins communities. Let's be really honest, right? Sin is often a form of self-harm. We hurt ourselves in that process. But sin is also a form of attack on other people. I have seen how sin breaks marriages. How sin takes advantage of people. How sin abuses people. And on top of all that, I've seen how for some reason a person can do all of that and still justify all of their actions. That's the power of sin. It bashes people, but it also blinds them from the effect they're having on people. They don't even know what they're doing, or at least they can't see clearly. 
but you know that blindness to sin isn't just about being unaware. Sometimes, and this is probably worse, it is knowing what you were doing, but still justifying and explaining it away. Like, like yeah, I, I cheated on my spouse, but that's because they gave me no choice. Like, like yeah, I, I stole that thing, but it's because I needed to. Or like, yeah, I, I took advantage of that person, but isn't that just how the way the world works? What's even worse than that is justifying all of this using Christian language. Like to say, yeah, I guess we could call this sexual sin, but it's not that bad, and God won't mind. Or to say, yeah, that's technically not stealing, because I'm just taking back what's mine. Have you heard that before? Or no, we don't have to feel bad about doing this because God's going to forgive us anyway. You know, I think I've seen some of the most wicked and depraved side of humanity. And I can probably say there's nothing worse than someone who does evil and justifies it using spiritual language. Now, I could tell you story after story about the destructive effects of sin, the the blinding nature of sin, the severe consequences of sin, but you probably don't need to hear any of that because you know it personally too well. You know how your own sin has hurt you. You know how your own sin has hurt others. You know how other people's sins have hurt you. This is my daily reality, and I keep asking myself why this is the case. Why is it that sin continues to have such a destructive grip over us as a church here at Grace Point? Why? In a surprising way, Romans 7 gives us an answer, and it's simply this. We have underestimated sin. That's why it continues to ruin us the way it does. We underestimate its power over our lives. We underestimate the destructive effect it has on ourselves and others. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu says this, right? There is no greater danger than underestimating your opponent. Because the moment you do that, you let your guard down and you open yourself up to attack. That's actually how sin creeps in and destroys when we underestimate it. But you see, the problem is not just that we underestimate sin. The problem is also, listen very closely, we overestimate our ability to conquer sin. There is a sort of pride that makes us think that we are more immune than the person sitting next to us. And at the same time, we overestimate sin's promise to bring life. Every time we sin, we are failing to believe that God has a better plan for us. Every time we sin, we are settling for second best. We are choosing to believe the lies of the devil within the promises of God. Romans 7 verses 14 and 25 tells us this very simple message. Are you ready? Underestimate sin and it will overcome your life. Underestimate sin and it will overcome your life. If we continue to underestimate sin, that it will destroy us. But the good news of Romans 7, however, is that the Bible is unapologetically honest about the true power of sin. And it also tells us how we can be free. How? Let's dive into our passage. And as we look at verses 14 to 25, we notice three paradoxes that Paul highlights. Come to point one with me. 
A paradox, by the way, is a seemingly contradictory statement. It seems contradictory when it isn't. We find the first paradox in verses 14 and 16. You have to pay really close attention to your Bibles, right? You have to read along. Because here, Paul highlights our need for God's law while also recognizing its insufficiency, while also recognizing its limitations. You see, Paul begins in verse 14 by stating that the law is spiritual. You see that? In other words, the law has a spiritual source. Paul's saying the law comes from God, and as such, the law of God is good. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because up to this point, we know that the law of God has at least three uses. Firstly, the law is necessary because it teaches us. The law of God spells out right and wrong. That's what Romans 7 verse 7 is saying. The law shows us God's will. Second of all, the law is necessary in restraining evil, in stopping evil from being as evil as it can be. You see, without the law, we wouldn't know right from wrong. And without knowing right from wrong, humans would do whatever they please and evil would run rampant in this world. But you see, because there is the law of God, evil, though common in our world, is not as bad as it could be. Now, can we just pause right there and just appreciate the power of the law? Because we live in a very sinful, broken, and wicked world where people do terrible things to one another. And to think that without the law, it could be worse. The law of God is a gift that restrains evil in this world. It causes our conscience to be more sensitive. The law gives us a justice system that provides guidelines to punish evil and reward good. The law is a standard to live by. Church, the law is a gift from God. We need it. That's the second use. Thirdly, the law also positively shows us how to please God. You see, by showing us right from wrong, we know how to honor God, how to live for Him, how to show Christ to be our greatest treasure ever. That's why Paul says the law is spiritual. It comes from God. It is good. We need it. Verse 16, look at your Bibles with me, also makes this point. It says, And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Translation, very simple. Paul's saying, if I sin, that is, if I do what I do not want to do, if I sin, then it proves that God's law is actually necessary. Because if we are perfect, if we did not sin, then we wouldn't need the law to tell us what sin is. But Paul's saying the fact that we sin shows God's law is necessary. Are you following? The logic is surprisingly simple. Because there is sin, we need the law. It is good. And yet, it is insufficient. It is limited. Because you and I know, though we have the law of God written in our hearts and written in the Bible, sin is still present. We are still under the bondage of sin. That's paradox one. We need the law, but it's not enough. And so one of the expressions of paradox one is following paradox two. Knowing good, but still doing evil. Uh, that's almost the heart of this entire portion of Scripture, isn't it? Verse 15 captures it perfectly. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. I want you to notice, Paul knows what is good. 
Paul knows what honors God because the law makes it clear, and yet he continues to do evil. Verse 18 reinforced this, right? Verse 18, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I, underline this in your Bibles, I cannot carry it out. Do you feel the same sense of helplessness that Paul is articulating in his tone right now? A desperation? Have you experienced this? Because you see, that's linked to the third paradox, where he highlights that he delights in the law, but continues to sin. That's verses 22-23, right? For my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You know what? Paul doesn't just recognize his need for the law. He just doesn't think it's a good idea, right? He loves it. He delights in it. But even that is insufficient to free him from the destructive grips of sin. That's so interesting, isn't it? Can I draw a few implications for us for a moment? Firstly, just knowing right from wrong will not stop us from sinning. Just knowing right from wrong will not stop us from sinning. That's probably a bit too obvious to say, but I just want to highlight that, right? Cognitively and mentally knowing what is or is not sin will not stop us from sinning. You know it, right? The speed limit sign says it's 60, but does that knowledge stop you from occasionally going above? That's a joke, right? This person drives above the speed limit, the police officer pulls him over, and he says, didn't you see the speed limit sign? And the driver said, yes, I just didn't see you, right? That's how it is, right? We, knowledge doesn't stop. We need a stronger motivation, a reason, a purpose. You don't just need a change of mind. You need a change of heart. A second implication, doing good and pursuing godliness is therefore not just about knowing more. i said say that again. Doing good and pursuing godliness is not just about knowing more. Why do I say that? Because, see, I think there is a risk in Christianity to believe that the only way to combat sin is by acquiring more knowledge. Like, if I just know more of the Bible, then I can defeat sin. Does it help and does it make a difference? Absolutely, right? But is it the answer? Our passage makes it clear. You can have all the information in the world, but still have an unchanged heart. Now, does it mean that Bible study, engaging with sermons, CGs, 321, discipleship, all the rest of it, they are useless? Well, absolutely not. Of course they're helpful. But you see, I want you to write this down. Knowledge is a means to an end, not an end unto itself. Our knowledge of Scripture ought to lead to something. It ought to lead to devotion. It ought to lead to transformation. A heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know, but we ought to engage with Scripture, not just with the desire to know more, but to love God more deeply. Thirdly, I think it's really important to recognize, listen very closely, the degree of personal responsibility when it comes to sin. Personal responsibility 
when it comes to sin. Here is the thing. One of my observations when it comes to walking with people through sin is that many are extremely quick to blame people, blame circumstances, and blame context for their sin rather than their own role in it. Oh, as I said before earlier, justifying their sin, right? I sin, but it was because of this, that, or the other. Now, do external factors influence our tendency to sin? Obvious answer is yes, right? But, but do you notice what Paul says here? Look at your Bibles. He is fully aware that he is the one sinning. He owns the responsibility for the sins he commits in thought, word, and deed. He knows these are all his own. Sin is waging war against him. Now, this here is extremely important because if you're like me, then we are so quick to shun responsibility and place blame in other areas, right? And that's partly because of shame. The sense of shame. Blaming releases us of the burden of shame. To be able to say, someone made me do it, makes sin that much more acceptable, right? But you know, the problem with blame is that we never end up dealing with the root cause of the problem. It's always somebody else. Friends, brothers, and sisters, listen very closely. The root cause is you. It's me. There may have been things that led us to sin, but no matter what we say, we are spiritually and morally culpable for our own actions and our affections. We are sinners. Don't you see, blaming is another way of underestimating sin. It's an attempt to reduce sin to a particular set of circumstances. So that we say, if only I wasn't in that room, if I wasn't forced to do that, if I wasn't tired, then I would not have sin. No. Sin is a default human disposition against God so that even if we knew what was right, we are still trapped in it, unable to do anything about it. That's why Romans 7 is so helpful. Because God's word doesn't play into the world's game of blaming or victimizing. It tells us that sin is the root issue. It tells us that we are sinners. It tells us that we have underestimated sin. It tells us that we are enslaved and trapped. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Nor, no knowledge, no willpower in the words of verse 24. We are wretched, hopeless, and helpless. You know, you will never treat a problem seriously unless you know the severity uh, our brother Stephen recently, uh, Stephen Yao, uh, has recently been suspected of a heart condition by his doctors. Uh, it's called Brugada syndrome. It, that's the suspected condition. He's not sure yet, still waiting to be diagnosed. Doctors are concerned, and so they're running a whole series of tests on him. But the severity of his condition is such that there are a whole bunch of things he cannot do, because that would just aggravate the condition. These things include rigorous exercise. Now for Stephen, that means he cannot do his beloved Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Now if you know Stephen, then this news is very difficult to swallow. He doesn't mind being sick, right? But not doing Jiu-Jitsu, that's a different kind of chronic condition, right? But the doctors have made the consequences very simple and clear. They say, do it, overexert your heart, and you could die. Okay, well, that changes things, doesn't it, right? That's not just a minor inconvenience. 
Because of that, Stephen is now very careful. He's not overexerting himself. And he may or may not have used his condition to get out of a few ministry things, right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He hasn't, he hasn't. Uh, but, but don't you see, Stephen could die from underestimating his condition. If he said, it's not that bad, then it's over for him. But if he takes it seriously, even if he doesn't like it, that's when he can be healed. Church, don't you see, this is what God's Word is doing to us right now. Causing us to face our condition with no lies, with no deceptions and no illusions in order that we may be healed. Because as you come to point two with me, what you'll discover is that Paul makes it clear that there is absolutely no human solution for our heart condition except by the power of God. And one of the expressions of God's power is an honest assessment of sin. So that we have no room to underplay or underestimate the severity of our sin. Now you see, I want you to notice, without God's power, we would not be able to be honest. That's how verse 25 ends, right? He says, what a helpless and hopeless man I am as a sinner. Who will liberate me? Do, 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 do you realize that is such honesty? But why? Look at your Bibles with me. Verse 25. Thanks be to God. Paul is saying, God will help us. He is the answer. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't have to downplay our condition because though our sins are great, our Savior Jesus is greater still. We don't have to live in denial. The gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to see sin for what it truly is, not as a minor inconvenience, but a spiritual and heart condition that destroys us, rots us from the inside, and hurts the people around us. The good news, as we sneak into Romans 8, is that though our sins, they are many, it is possible to have no condemnation in Christ. That's chapter 8, verse 1. Because the heart of the Christian faith is that sinners can be saved. They can be set free from the destructive bondage of sin. They can be made right with God. Jesus, through His death on the cross and His resurrection through new life, gives our sin a double cure. We are cleansed of its guilt and we are cleansed of its power. Write this down. Guilt and power. You see, that's why Romans 8 verse 1 is so important. He says there is no condemnation. That's courtroom language. It's justice language. It simply reflects the reality that we are guilty as sinners and deserving of punishment, death. But the reason there can be no condemnation for guilty sinners like you and I is because Christ paid that price for us. The guilty, shaming, and condemning effects of sins no longer need to be ours. We are free for those who trust in Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. But you see, Christ doesn't just give us freedom from the guilty stain of sin. He also frees us from the grip of sin and gives us power by the Holy Spirit to pursue righteousness and holiness. Now again, I'm reaching too much into Romans 8, but I want to draw your attention to this. Right, Turn your Bibles with me. Romans 8 verse 11. It says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Translation, on our own, we can do nothing against sin. That's what Romans 7 is saying. We are trapped in this cycle of knowing what needs to be done, yet being helpless about what ought to be done. And church, if you continue to rely on your own power, that is the pit of despair that you will never climb out of. But if you lean on Christ and the Holy Spirit, we will not be weak against sin. We will not be helpless against sin. Sin does not have to overcome our lives. Now listen very closely. I want to expand on this double cure for just a moment, okay? Let's firstly talk about guilt. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we continue in our sin because we feel hopeless. We feel hopeless. That's so significant, isn't it? Because I know that it's entirely possible for you to think, look, I'm a sinner anyway. There is absolutely nothing I can do to change that. I feel so guilty. God can never accept a person like me. And sometimes it's possible to believe that lie so much that we just continue in our cycle of sin because we do not believe that there could possibly be a better way. Here's the good news of Romans 7 to 8. There is a better way. Through Christ, God does not hold your sins against you. In Christ, you can be forgiven. You don't have to remain hopeless. You don't have to feel like it's too late. You don't have to feel like you are at the end of the road and there's no turning back. You can never outrun God's grace. So if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, I've messed up so much, I don't even know why I'm here, then hear this. God loves you. He cares for you. You are sitting here because He wants you to know that and He's calling you to trust in Him, to return to Him, maybe for the first time, but maybe for the thousandth time. God's saying, come back to me. You see, we are cleansed of the guilty stain of sin through Christ so that we don't have to be hopeless anymore. But we also cleanse of the gripping power of sin. Here's the second cure. You ready? Sometimes we continue in our sin because we feel helpless. We feel powerless. And I think a lot of people in this room, if you're like me, you can relate to this, right? Like people that said to me, Pastor Elliot, you know what? I've tried. I have tried putting sin to death, and on good days, things are going great. But most of the time, it feels like two steps forward, one step back. It has never really worked for me. And in that state of helplessness, we can just say, look, you know what? It's just too hard. Who cares? Let's just keep sinning anyway. Uh, but church, don't you see, the fact that Christ has freed us from the bondage of sin actually means that we are like a person trapped in a prison, but the gate has been unlocked. The prison gate has no power. We don't have to stay there. We don't have to let sin continue to destroy us. Sin has no power over us. We're invited to lean on God's promises that He has set us free. Someone is telling us, guys, the gate is unlocked. 
And more often than not, we're inside, we're saying, no, it isn't. And the guys, the warden's saying, it's been unlocked. Run. You're free. Oh, church, are we willing to lean on that promise and the declaration? Titus 2, verses 11 to 12, right? The grace of God trains us and enables us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to say no to sin, to live controlled, upright, godly lives, to say yes to holiness, righteousness, and life to the full. What does that look like? Why don't you come to our final point with me? Because I believe that Romans 7 and cheekily a bit of Romans 8 is showing us that freedom from sin is calling us to at least three things. Sin doesn't have to overcome us. Firstly, it is a call to a radical standard. That is, to hold fast to and to preserve God's standard for what sin is. I'll say it again. To hold fast to and to preserve God's standard for what sin is. What I mean is this. According to Romans 7 to 8, you and I are not free to redefine sin. We do not have the liberty to look at ethical issues and say, "Mm, you know what, God will be okay with that, especially if His Word has made His position clear. We do not have the freedom to dwell on morally gray areas and say, you know what, Mm, you know what, the Bible doesn't really say it's that bad. We do not have the right to push boundaries on sexual, relational, emotional categories and say, you see, it all just depends on your conscience. If you feel okay with it, God wouldn't say it's wrong. That's the game our world plays. To keep shifting goalposts, but that's foolish, isn't it? Sin is hurting you. Sin is hurting others around you. God has made His standards clear in Scripture. Shifting our standards will not change the destructive impact that sin has on your life. The pursuit of life to the full under Christ is then firstly to uphold and maintain God's standard for sin, to be unflinchingly honest about it. Can I give you a point to ponder? Here's a question you can reflect on over the course of this week. What sin have you redefined or underestimated So you think you can get away with it. What sin have you redefined or underestimated so that you think you can get away with it? At church, we are not free to redefine sin. Secondly, upon being humble and honest about our sin is then to have a radical commitment to daily confession. And this daily confession is before God. But I also want to encourage us to think about frequent confession before fellow trusted brothers and sisters in the faith, right? And I want to say we cannot talk about this enough. Because, see, every fiber of our being does not want to engage in frequent and daily confession. We don't want to do it. We say it's boring. But but really, there's a deeper reason. We don't want to do it because it's forcing us to be honest with ourselves, and this honesty requires, it requires us to strip ourselves of pride. Uh, the, the theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer says that confession is the profoundest kind of humiliation because it cuts a person down and it deals a blow to their pride. But he also says, it is through this deep mental and 
physical pain of humiliation that we experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. Uh, it is far easier to ignore the sinful state of our souls and just to keep moving on and pretend like it's not there. Sweep it under the carpet. Let's hope it never surfaces again. And yet, James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us that there is healing powers to confession, right? That totally makes sense. Because it is through confession that we once again recognize our desperate need for God and receive more of His bountiful grace. You want sin to stop having a grip over your lives, destroying you and others? Recognize it and confess it daily. Plan it into your day, right? We plan for prayer and Bible reading as frequently as we can, don't we? How often do you integrate confession into your prayers? Take all the bulletins home where we write confessions for you. These are words that you can utter. And how often do you read a portion of Scripture, and in that portion you recognize your propensity towards the same sin that is described there, and then in there you confess, Lord, I am a wretched person. Without you I am nothing, but with you I have everything. Lord, please help me. Here's a feeling to face, okay? Perhaps our hesitancy to confess our sins has less to do with the fact that it's boring or monotonous, and has more to do with our fear. Our fear of coming face to face with our own weakness, with our own limitation, with our own sin. But church, this fear doesn't have to stop us. The grace of God draws us. He calls upon us. He invites these sorts of confession that He may lavish His love and grace and mercy upon us. Now let me encourage all of us to have a radical commitment to daily confession. Because by doing that, we are prepared to have a sort of radical dependence on God to put sin to death and to pursue life. There is an old description for the idea of putting sin to death, right? You probably want to write this down. It's called mortification. Mortification. Now, if you look up this word online, you will come across different ideas of what mortification looks like. Some helpful, some not really helpful. Uh, but the Puritan John Owen wrote this excellent book called The Mortification of Sin. And the fundamental theme of this book is that Christians have the responsibility to fight against sin in their lives. Right? So Christ is the one who redeems. The Spirit is the one who empowers. And because all of these biblical realities are true, we too now have the power to fight sinful inclinations, sinful thoughts, sinful actions. We cannot do any of this apart from the power of God, and we'll talk about some practical recommendations in a moment. But before you do that, I also want to introduce another category to you. Right? You ready? First is mortification. But there's also another form of radical dependence on God, and it's called vivification. Vivification, pursuing life under Christ. The word vivify means alive, to make alive. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And as those who are freed from sin, we don't just actively put sin to death. It is not enough. We are to actively pursue the new life that God has in store for us. Uh, and, and this seems like a minor theological thing that Elliot is interested in, but, but it's more than that, right? Because these are two wings that keep a plane in the sky. 
You see, sometimes in the Christian tradition, we speak very strongly about mortification, putting sin to death, right? And that's so good and so important. But I want to say that pastorally, speaking about mortification without vivification is insufficient. You can't fly a plane with just one wing. See, that's why people feel hopeless and helpless because we think, okay, God is calling me to give all of this up, but then what? We fail to forget that God isn't just asking us to let go of the sin that destroys. God is also calling us to grasp, to hold on to, to chase the life that is even better. A life that He promises to us, a life of joy and fulfillment. Maybe you've experienced this before, okay? You can try it after the service. Sometimes my daughter Anastasia will grab and hold on to something that she shouldn't. Like a set of keys on a dining table, a loose piece of trash on the floor, or maybe even someone's hair. Maybe one of the girls have been unlucky with that, right? And if you tell her to let go, it'll be difficult. She'll probably scream in your face, right? And if you pull her hand away from the object, everyone gets hurt, especially if she's grabbing your hair. Listen very closely. The best way to get her to let go is to offer something better. To exchange the keys for a snack, the trash for a toy, the hair for a hug. And you'll notice something, right? Without even realizing, she finds it that much easier to let go of what she's holding on to because there's something better to hold on to. Don't you see? God isn't just asking us to let go and put sin to death. He does do that. Romans 7 makes it clear about how it destroys us. But He also invites us to grab onto the new life that is found in Christ. You are saved, redeemed, you are renewed by the Spirit. So walk by the Spirit, experience and enjoy the new life that is found in Him. Let me give you three words as your actions to apply this coming week. Are you ready? You can write this down. The three words are, Flee, feed, and follow. Flee, feed, and follow. To flee is part of mortifying sin. Flee from situations, environments, conversations, and maybe even people who tempt you to sin. Is it a late night on the phone that makes you prone to porn? Is it a work trip that opens you up to sexual temptation? Is it an office environment? that makes you susceptible to gossip, slander, and stealing? Is it social gatherings that makes it easier for you to compare, to cover, to be discontent? Now, we need to remind ourselves that we are responsible for our sin, okay? And it's not these external circumstances that cause us to sin, it's our heart. But we'd be foolish to think that these circumstances and environments have no impact on us. Of course they impact us. But I also want to say, I want to be really honest, right? Fleeing, tempting situations is not always easy. And I want you to be super clear on this. You're ready. It could be costly. Chances are, it will be costly. The question is, will sinning cost you more? There's a wonderful story of Billy Graham. He has his operating principle called the Billy Graham Rule. And many people who have studied Billy Graham's life, the great evangelist, after his death, they say that this rule has kept him from all the sex scandals that often follow very public Christian figures. His rule is this. 
He is never alone in a room with a woman who is not his wife or his daughter. Simple. Never. Now, a lot of people mock Billy Graham for this rule, right? Like, how archaic, how old school, right? My goodness, such an old person thing. Uh, but given the recent Me Too movement, one wonders if so much tragedy could have been avoided if more people were just honest about the destructive effects of sin. Yeah? Graham made this rule not because he didn't trust women. He made this rule because he couldn't trust himself. He couldn't trust sin. Underestimate sin and it will overcome you. But here's another rule that you may not be aware of. Graham had this rule where he would never be in a hotel room with a TV in it. Now, Billy Graham spent most of his life traveling, so he lived in a lot of hotels. And so before he arrived at a new place, he would tell the reception to remove the TV before he moved in. And if you understood the times, this was during a period where pornography was becoming increasingly accessible by cable TV, right? There was this once when he moved into his room, and the TV was still there. He asked them, why didn't you remove the TV as he instructed? They said, it's because this new TV, one of those flat screen ones, is bolted to the wall. And because it's bolted to the wall, you can't just take it off the stand like the old ones. Graham insisted and asked them to do it, but they wouldn't. And so Billy Graham went up and ripped the TV off the wall, and he said, here, Please remove this from the room. His staff thought he was crazy. Do you know how much it is going to cost to repair this? To which he said, we can replace all of this. But I do not want to jeopardize what God wants to do by allowing impurity into my life. There is a cost. But what's the cost of one's soul? If you ignore the cost of fleeing, you will end up paying for it somewhere else. Flee from sin, even if it's costly. You do not want to look back on your life and just say, I just wish. Flee, church. The second is to feed. Feed your heart, soul, and mind with ideas, desires, and dreams that help you to grow in godliness. We feed ourselves things all the time, right? Based on what we look and what we listen, will you consciously feed yourself with things that help you to grow in godliness? Let me ask you a question. What sort of music and podcasts and conversations do you listen to? What sort of movies and videos and TikTok reels do you watch? What sort of books and magazines and feeds and forums do you read? Do not underestimate how these little bits begin to reshape and reframe your standards for sin. It is so subtle. You know, this tobacco industry encouraged an entire generation of people to smoke, not by coming up with big ads and campaigns that says smoking is good for you. That would never work. They change an entire world and generation's minds by filming celebrities just holding a cigarette on set or on photo. The cigarette didn't even need to be lit. They just had to hold it. It just had to be there. And movie after movie, ad after ad, show after show, that became the norm. You see, your attitude towards money, sex, and power all are being radically shaped by what you feed your heart, soul, and mind. 
Feed it then with biblical ideas for the life that God has promised for you. Think about what you feed yourself. And lastly, follow. Like I said, we're not just called to let go and just kill sin. We're called to run to and pursue life. God's law and God's word has been given so that we may walk in obedience. It's not there to rob you of joy. It's there to amplify your joy. So let me leave you with one last question for today. Which one of God's law and God's word do you struggle most to obey? Which one of God's law and God's word do you struggle most to obey? My prayer is that the grace of God will compel you today to see that life is found in trusting in his promises and walking in his way. John Owen, in Mortification of Sin, writes this very simple quote. It's in your outlines. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Simple and profound, isn't it? Well, as we said today, underestimate sin, and it will overcome you. But if you have a realistic estimation of sin, if you trust in Christ for salvation and power, and that is for anyone in this room, then life to the full is waiting for you. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word to us here in Romans chapter 7, and indeed for um, all the past seven chapters we've been working through over the past few months. And we ask, dear Lord, that you by your Spirit would seal these truths, not just deep within our minds, but deep within our hearts that you would challenge and convict us by your spirit, that this information would turn into transformation to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.